You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Gospel of John, chapter 6. And we will read together just verses 41 through 47. Therefore the Jews were grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. They were saying, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down out of heaven? Jesus answered and said to them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. It's written in the prophets, and they shall be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. Let's pray together. Our God, we do bow before you and before your word, and our desire is that you might teach us today and instruct us from your word, crush our pride, And may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be magnified and be in full view of your people today that we might praise you and worship you and thank you for such amazing, sovereign, condescending, and loving grace. You are good, and we know that you are good, and we ask now that that goodness might be manifested in your word to us as we behold the wonderful things in it. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, it is a very humbling thing to have to admit that you can't do something, is it not? Especially if you and I have uh, unrealistic expectations or unrealistic uh, views of ourselves and our own abilities, to be able to say to somebody, "I, I can't do that. I don't have the ability, I don't have the capacity, or I don't have the skill, or I don't have the strength or the power to do this, that it can be a very humbling thing. And that is why the gospel is such a humbling gospel. Because the sinner, you and I, before we come to Christ, have to be able to admit that we cannot do something. We cannot merit salvation. We cannot earn salvation. We cannot warrant salvation. We cannot make God give us salvation. We do not deserve salvation. We cannot do anything to accumulate righteousness that might merit God's favor. We're unable to do all of those things. We, In fact, our inability or our lack of power, our I can't, extends even beyond our inability to acquire righteousness. It actually... Our I can't applies even to the ability to change our ways. I I can't remove from myself my heart of stone and make for myself a heart of flesh. I cannot change my spots. Me who am accustomed to doing evil cannot stop doing evil by myself. I cannot turn from darkness to light. I can't leave the darkness. I can't draw near to God. I can't exercise saving faith. I can't repent. I can't do things which are pleasing to Him. I cannot submit myself and my heart to the law of God. I cannot keep the law. I cannot do anything which is righteous. Not only do I, am I not able to do the things which might make for righteous standing before God, I am not even able by myself to change my condition and to go a different direction and to draw near to a holy, righteous God in my own strength and by my own power. I am in every sense of the word and in every fiber of my being, entirely unable to do anything which is pleasing to God and unable to change my own condition before God. 
Something is necessary. And that is the grace of God. It is that inability and that grace which is described in John 6, verse 44, which we started looking at last week, where Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. Now last week we just looked at the inability side of that, the no one can come to me. And the reason we spent some time to focus in on, on that side of this doctrine is because we are never going to understand what the drawing is that's mentioned in verse 44 if we don't first understand the extent and the, the nature of the inability that's mentioned in the beginning of the verse. So we have to understand that no man can come to the Father or can come to the Son unless before we can understand what it means that the Son, or the, we have to be drawn by the Father to the Son in order to come to Him. So just so we're all on the same page and to, and to recap and to make sure that we've got all of this fresh in our mind, I want to give you three statements that I gave you last week about the nature of this inability. The inability described first in verse 44 is not a lack of permission. It is a lack of power. Do you remember that? It's not that we are kept out of heaven by a begrudging God who does not give us permission to enter in. It is rather that we lack the power to enter in. We cannot. The no man is able, the able being described there is not a lack of permission, it's a lack of power. No man has the strength, the capacity, the wherewithal, the ability, the power to enter into the kingdom of heaven or to draw near to the sun. It is an inability of permission, or sorry, of power, not of permission. Second, we saw that the inability is a moral inability, not a physical inability. It's not that the sinner is unable to walk an aisle, or the sinner is unable to check a box on a card, or that the sinner is unable to pray a sinner's prayer. Nor is it that the sinner is unable to believe certain things. Sinners do this all day, every day. People can do all of those things and yet remain unregenerate. Because the inability being described is not an inability to do some physical thing, to attend an event, or to apply to uh, appeal, sorry, to respond to an emotional appeal. The inability being described there is a moral inability. The sinner cannot Because the sinner will not. It is his lack of will which lies at the heart of his lack of ability. It is because the sinner does not want to turn from darkness to light that the sinner cannot turn from darkness to light. I gave an illustration to my kids last Sunday night when we were on Sunday nights. We we recoup what we cover here on Sunday morning. So we sit down as a family. And then uh, I tell them, you don't get to eat unless you can answer a question from the sermon. And also all of them pay very good close attention, and we have a question from the sermon. So last Sunday night, I gave my kids an illustration of this inability being tied to a lack of will, a want of the will. And here's the illustration I gave. It would be very true for me to say to my children, I could never kill one of my children. Now, does that mean that I'm physically unable to kill one of my children? I'm not physically unable. I could do that. I mean, physically I could do that. I'm stronger than them, I'm smarter than them, I'm more creative than them. I could, I could overcome or overpower any of the four of them or all four of them at the same time and kill all of them, what? If I wanted to. But I do not want to. And so it is absolutely true that I could say I could never kill one of my children. Not because I lack the physical capacity to do it, but I lack the will to do it. I do not desire it in the least. And it is that lack of desire which is my lack of ability, it is my lack of will, which constitutes my hostility and my lack of ability to do something. No man can come to the sun. Why? Because the sun is light and men love darkness. And men always do exactly what they want to do. Always. It's the desire that is corrupt. And that desire which is corrupt holds lost men in bondage so that they cannot turn from that because they do not want 
to turn from that. They lack the will because they lack the desire. So their inability is tied to the lack of will. Their lack of will is tied to the desire for sin and for all things hostile to God. So it's not a physical inability. It is a moral inability that Jesus is speaking of in John 6.44. Furthermore, this is a comprehensive inability. It's comprehensive. It's not just a select portion of humanity. It's not Gentiles who are unable or just Jews who are unable or a select group of either one that is unable. It's not people from a certain time period that are unable. It is all men everywhere. No one has this ability. This applies to all of the fallen sons of Adam, that they are unable. And by the way, there is, there's no such thing as some person being more unable than another. I am, in my sinfulness, just as unable to come to Christ as Adolf Hitler was. Hard for you to grasp? Are you able to say that? I am just as unable to turn from my sin to righteousness as Adolf Hitler was. Because it's not a matter of some people are more able than others. No man is able. No man can. So all men are equally unable. And it applies to all of humanity. And it is a total inability. I am just as lost, without Christ, I am just as lost and sinful and wicked and depraved and hopeless as any sinner you could name from any era of history. We are all in that camp because no man is able. So it is not a lack of permission. It's a lack of power. It's not a physical inability. It's a moral inability. And it's not a limited uh, inability. It is a comprehensive inability. So now we turn back to John 6, verse 44. We got that in our mind. Now we can look at the drawing of the Father. What is this drawing that Jesus mentions at the end of the verse? No man can come to me. No one can come unless the Father who sent me draws him. What is that drawing? You and I have to understand that the drawing of the Father, of the sinner to Christ, the drawing of the Father, is absolutely necessary for salvation. It is necessary. It's not ancillary. It's not optional. It's necessary. No one can or will come to the Son unless the Father is drawing that one to the Son. It's necessary. If man was in the least bit able, the drawing of the Father would not be necessary at all. Can you see that? If man were in the least bit able to do this on his own, then God would just simply say, you do it. You have the ability. You just need to conjure it up. You need to try harder. If man was in the least bit able to turn from sin to righteousness, then the drawing of the Father wouldn't even be mentioned because it would not be necessary at all. But the fact that man is not able and that no man is able makes the drawing work of the Father essential to anyone's salvation. J.C. Ryle said this, the nature of man since the fall is so corrupt and depraved that even when Christ is made known and preached to him, he will not come to Christ and believe in him without the special grace of God inclining his will, giving him a disposition to come. Moral suasion and advice alone will not bring him. He must be drawn. End quote. It's necessary. It's essential. And by the way, this has far-reaching implications and applications to our lives in the areas of philosophy of ministry and theology and evangelism and all the things that are tied in with that. and we could, I could spend a whole sermon just giving you the applications of these truths, but let me just highlight one. If the sinner is unable in and of himself to come to Christ, then this affects how we do evangelism. And it means that it does not matter what the flow of the music is or what type of music is played or what the lighting looks like or what type of gimmick you try or what type of stage show you put on. None of that can draw a sinner to Christ. None of it. That affects philosophy of ministry and how we do evangelism. If no one can come to the Savior unless the Father draws him, then that means that no gimmick, no fog machine, 
no lighting setup, no sound system, no movie clip, no emotional appeal. There is absolutely nothing that you can do to draw a sinner to Christ. Because that rests entirely outside of you. It's on somebody else to do that. Ours is simply to proclaim. Not to try and craft a service that will draw people forward and make an emotional appeal. You and I can do absolutely nothing to initiate the drawing, to create the drawing, or to overcome a sinner's hostility or resistance. We cannot do anything to do that. All we can do is present the truth and trust that God, who is the one who draws, will, by His own grace and His own sovereignty, draw people to Himself. It is a necessary thing that a person be drawn before they can come to faith in Christ. Now, what is the drawing? What type of drawing are we talking about? We can kind of get some idea of what the drawing is by looking at how that word draw is used other places in the Bible, particularly in the Gospel of John. And I want you to just turn to a couple of passages. We're going to show you where this word draw is used, and you can kind of get a picture of what it means. The word draw there is a word that means, listen carefully, to apply pressure to something or to use force in order to move an object from one place to another. It means to apply force in order to move an object from one place to another. That's what the word draw means. Okay, now I want you to see how it's used in the Gospel of John. Turn over to chapter 12. A couple of passages we'll look at. John chapter 12. In verse 32, in verse 30, Jesus said, the voice is, This voice has not come for my sake, but for your sakes. Now judgment is upon the world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. See that verse? It's kind of the idea. Same idea of being drawn there, applying force from one, uh, uh, to, uh, applying force to an object to move it from one place to another place. That's the meaning of the word draw. Now we return to chapter 12, verse 32. In just a moment, we deal with the extent of this drawing because this is a key passage. Turn over to John chapter 18. John chapter 18, verse 10. This is in the Garden of Gethsemane. Simon Peter then, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his ear, and the slave's name was Malchus. You see there the idea of grabbing onto something and pulling it? That's the idea of drawing. Peter grabbed onto it, applied force, and drew his sword. Look over to John chapter 21, verse 6. This is after the resurrection when Jesus appears near the Sea of Galilee and Peter and John are fishing. They answered him, verse 6, uh, or he asked them, Children, do you have any fish? Do you? Let's try it again, verse 5. Children, you do not have any fish, do you? And they answered him, No. Verse 6, And he said to them, Cast the net on the right-hand side of the boat, and you will find a catch. So they cast, and they were not able to haul it in. That's the reference in John chapter 1. The word haul it in. They were not able to haul it in because of the number of the fish. And there are references to their inability to grab this net full of fish and actually pull it into the boat. It's because the boat was too small and they were too weak to actually grab onto this thing and haul it in. Applying force to move something from one place to another. But look at later on what happens in 21 verse 11. Simon Peter went up and drew the net to the land. It's the same word. Full of large fish, 153, and although there were so many, the net was not torn. So there the word is used of grabbing a net full of fish and drawing them, applying force to move them out of the water up onto the land. Literally grabbing a net and dragging it from one place to another. That's the word that's used. And other times when it's used in the New Testament, three other times, all three of the times it's translated drag. To drag something, to grab a hold of it and apply force, and to drag something from one location to another. Acts chapter 16, verse 19, after Paul 
had exorcised the demon out of the slave girl in Acts chapter 16. Her master saw that their hope of profit was gone. And Luke says they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. You get the picture there? Vivid, vivid word, isn't it? Grab a hold of them and drag them into the marketplace before the authorities. John, in the book of Acts chapter 21, in the city of Jerusalem, all the city was provoked and the people rushed together. Taking hold of Paul, they dragged him out of the temple and immediately the doors were shut. And in James chapter 2 verse 6, James says, You've dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into the courts? Is he how that word is used? To apply force to something, to move it from one location to another. Sometimes translated dragging or drawing or pulling on something, like dragging a net full of fish up out of the water onto the land. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me drags him, draws him, pulls him, applies force to him to move him from one location to another. What are the two locations? Well, from the kingdom of Satan to the kingdom of light, from darkness into light, from unholiness into righteousness, from one affection or desire where it is hostility towards God, toward another one, the Father has to apply force to us to move us from one location to the other. That's required and necessary if anybody is to come to faith in Christ. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me drags him. I'm fine with that interpretation or that translation. Draws him, grabs him by force, and moves him from one location to another location. That is necessary for salvation. There has to be a drawing or a dragging or a luring Pulling on us from one location to another. The word always is translated, the word is always used to describe something that happens to another object that offers some form of resistance. Some form of resistance. Do, do sinners and unbelievers resist the grace of God and the drawing of the Father? Did you resist Him? Raise your hand if you resisted Him. In some way, to some degree, You applied some sort of force to resist the drawing of God. The word is always used to describe a force applied to something. That something resists the force. Like the sword. Like the net full of fish. Like the Paul being dragged out of the temple. Like Paul being dragged into the marketplace. Like the poor being dragged into the courts. There is resistance that is offered. But always in Scripture, this word is used to describe something that though offering resistance, that resistance is not ultimately successful. Resistance is futile. Because if you have been given by the Father to the Son, you will be assimilated. There is no ifs, ands, or buts about it. You can resist all you want, but ultimately, with you, if you belong to the Son, God will have His way with you. And you can kick against the goads all day long, but eventually, He will drive your face into the dust, and He will humble your heart, and He will conquer your indomitable will, and He will have His way with you because you belong to Him. Did that offend you? I'm thankful for that. I am thankful that ultimately God did not let me have my way with His will, but that His will had its way with my will. Because He dragged me. He drew me. He conquered my will. He conquered my will. No man can come to the Father unless, or the Son, unless the Father conquers His will, applies force to move Him from one place to another, and drags him, as it were, to the sun. And though we put up resistance, that resistance, it is meaningful. Sometimes the resistance is hostile. Sometimes the resistance is open. Sometimes the resistance is violent, like Saul kicking against the goads. But always the resistance is futile. In the case of those who were given by the Father to the Son, because the Father and the Son 
will have their way with those sheep that belong to the Son. Ultimately, though we resist, we will not conquer Him because He will have His way and His will will conquer ours. Now, does this happen? Is this a violation then of human will? Because this is the objection that some people say. They say, well, if this drawing happens like this, then that must do violence to the human will. It's a violation of the human will. Anybody here get saved against their will? And you're still saved today against your will? Anybody here get saved unwillingly? Nobody got saved unwillingly? Kicking and screaming? God dragging you by the hair into the kingdom? And now you're sitting here with your arms folded saying, I hate the idea of going to heaven. I don't want to go to heaven. I would rather be in unrighteousness and in sin and in hostility to God. I long for those days when I was at enmity with God and resisting His will. But here I am a Christian and I hate it. Nobody's ever done that. Nobody ever gets saved against their will. God doesn't do violence to the human will in saving us. Listen, He draws us not in contradiction to our will, but He draws us through our will. It is something He does in our hearts, in our affections, in our desires, in our eyes, in our mind, in our hearts, in our nature. In our desires and longings, there is something that goes on. It is mysterious, and I don't know how God does it. No flesh knows how He does it, but He does it. That makes us ultimately willing. So He doesn't draw us in violence to our wills. He draws us through our wills. So that He actually gives me a new will. So that now I have a will to will what my old will was never willing to will. And He does this, and I do this quite willingly. I didn't come to Christ apart from my will. I came to Christ because that was, to me, the greatest, the only thing that I could possibly do at the moment. I had to come. I so thirsted after righteousness that when I saw the living water, I said, I have to have that, and there is nothing that is going to keep me from that. I so hungered after forgiveness and salvation that when I saw the living bread, I said to myself, I have to have that. I must have that, and I will have that, and nothing will keep me from that. And I will abandon anything and everything and all things, if necessary, to have what Christ offers. What made me willing? His will. No one can come to the Son unless the Father who sent the Son draws me or draws them. If you are with the Son today, you have been drawn. And you have been drawn, in a sense, irresistibly. It doesn't mean that you didn't resist it. It means that ultimately your resistance will not triumph. His will and His drawing will triumph in your case. God does not do this in violence to the human will, but He actually changes the will. J.C. Ryle says this, and I love this quote, When our Lord says, except the Father draw him, we must not suppose that the drawing means such a violent drawing as the drawing of a prisoner to a jail or of an ox to the slaughterhouse. A drawing, in short, against a man's will. It is the drawing which the Father effects through the man's own will by creating a new principle within him. By the unseen agency of the Holy Ghost, he works on the man's heart without the man himself knowing it at the time inclines him to think, induces him to feel, shows him his sinfulness, and so leads him at length to Christ. Everyone that comes to Christ is so drawn. The Father, as it were, cures the fever of the soul. He creates the appetite. He sets the provisions before the sinner. He convinces him that they are wholesome and pleasant and that he is welcome. And thus the man is drawn to come and eat and live forever. There is often a great fight and struggle when the drawing grace of God first begins to work on the soul, and the consequence is great distress and depression. But when grace once begins, it always wins the victory at last. End quote. That's it. You came quite willingly. Why did you come willingly? What changed you from hostility and enmity 
to wanting and desire the thing that just moments before you had hated and resisted and opposed. Is there something that happened in you? There certainly was. It was the drawing of God. He opened your eyes to your sinfulness and your wretchedness and your horrible condition. And he set before you the cure for that. And he changed your affections and he changed your will and he changed your mind and he gave you light and he gave you a new nature and he did all of this through the act of regeneration so that coming to Christ was the most natural thing that any of you ever did. And you did it quite willingly. And there was a time during all of that when though the Father was drawing you and perhaps even at its strongest, you weren't even aware of it, were you? I wasn't aware of it. I wasn't aware until long afterwards that that's what God was doing in my heart. And yet he was making me willing and he was doing it in such a way I didn't even know he was doing it. I thought I was doing it. These were my decisions that I was making. This was my path that I was choosing. I was weighing out the options. I was looking at myself. I was hearing the gospel. I was considering the claims of Christ. I was making excuses and resisting his will and putting up barriers and all of that, running as far and as fast away from him as I possibly could, thinking that that path was going to take me to where I wanted to go. And all the time, it was the Father who was drawing me down that very thing to himself. So that Spurgeon could say this, man is as much drawn willingly as if he were not drawn at all. Did you catch that? Man is as much drawn willingly as if he were not drawn at all. And he comes to Christ with full consent as a, as a full, as a full consent as if no secret influence had ever been exercised in his heart. But that influence must be exercised or else there never has been and there never will be any man who either will or come, uh, can come to the Lord Jesus. End quote. So Spurgeon paradoxically says, we are saved with full consent against our will. That's beautiful. We are saved with full consent against our will. And by against our will, we mean against our old will, our hostile will, the will that was not willing to will our salvation or to do God's will. But God saves us in contradiction to our old will by giving us a new will that now wills what we never wanted to will before. That is the beautiful grace of God in the heart of a sinner. And if you came to Christ... There was probably a time when you didn't even know that was happening. And maybe for some of you, this is even the first time you've even heard of such a thing. But that's exactly what Jesus says. So who does this drawing apply to? That's another question we have to ask about the drawing of chapter 6, verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Who are drawn? Is it all men and all of humanity that are drawn? Or is it just some men and women who are drawn? Who does the drawing apply to? You don't even need to go outside of John 6 to get an answer to this question because even verse 44 answers it for us, especially in light of the entire context. John 6 verse 44 says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now, have you seen that phrase, I will raise him up on the last day before? Does that sound familiar? It ought to sound familiar because we saw it at the end of verse 40. We saw it at the end of verse 39. And that phrase connects verse 44 to everything Jesus said about this group of people in verses 37 through 40. So we can deduce and we can conclude, because this is exactly what Jesus is saying, that the one who is drawn is raised up on the last day. So who does this drawing apply to in verse 44? Is it all men without distinction and without exception? Or is it the same group of men that he has been describing since verse 37, verse 37 through 40? Well, the one who is drawn is raised up on the last day. From verse 40, who is raised up on the last day? Those who behold and believe in the Son. Those are the ones raised up on the last day. Who beholds and believes in the Son? The one who comes to the Son. 
the one whom the Son has pledged to keep, he comes to the Son, and the Son does not cast him out. And he comes to the Son because, verse 37, he was given by the Father to the Son. So who is it that's raised up on the last day? It's those who are given by the Father to the Son, who are received by the Son because it is a love gift from the Father to the Son. So the Son receives them and welcomes and keeps them all and has pledged to secure and to lose none but to keep all of them. And all of this company will come. They will behold. They will believe. They will receive eternal life. Verse 40. And they will be raised up. How can Jesus make that claim? Because verse 44 says the Father is going to draw them to the Son. The same group of people that are drawn is this group of people described in verses 37 through 40. It is the same group of people. It is those given by the Father to the Son. Now those who do not come, do not behold, do not believe, do not receive eternal life, and are not raised up are also not drawn in the way that verse 44 is speaking of being drawn. They are not drawn with this grace which conquers the will and brings salvation to God's people. Because the group of people drawn are raised up. How many of them? All of them are raised up. The one who is drawn is the one who is raised up. Unless the Father draws him, I will raise him up. It's not a drawing that is given to all men equally and only some are raised up. That doesn't fit the context at all. But then you say, Jim, didn't I read somewhere at some time that Jesus, if he is lifted up, would draw all men unto himself? Where did I hear that? We just read it, didn't we? John chapter 12, verse 32. So flip over to John chapter 12, verse 32. And I bring this up because this this is going to give us a good... Uh, a good lesson in Bible interpretation. So now you're going to see what you do not do. Here's what you don't do. When you're looking at one passage of Scripture and you're saying, for instance, like us, what is the extent of this drawing? You don't grab another verse of Scripture from another context on a different occasion, spoken to a different group of people on an entirely different subject, and take your perceived meaning of that text, bring it back to your original text, and shoehorn it in there, whether it fits or not, and then say there... It's all men. Therefore, it must be all men. Look at John chapter 12, verse 32. Jesus said, If I am, and I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. And there some say, see, it's all men. All means all, and all always means all, all the time. So therefore, it's all men. This drawing applies to all men. And Jesus is saying that all men will be drawn, so we're just going to assume that chapter 6, verse 44 means all men, even though nothing in the context of John chapter 6 says all men. And John chapter 6 itself limits it to the number of people that are given by the Father to the Son. And only those who receive eternal life are raised up. That's what you don't do. If we just back the assumption train up a little bit in John chapter 12, verse 32, and kind of take in the context, you and I will see what Jesus is talking about in John chapter 12. It's addressed to a different group of people on a different occasion, a different place, and a different time, on a totally different subject. John chapter 12, go back to verse 20. Now there were some Greeks among those who were first going up to worship at the feast. These came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus. Now what's going on here? The feast, you have Jews, or Greeks, non-Jews, we have Gentiles who come and they want an audience with the Lord. And so they approach his Jewish disciples and Andrew and Philip, neither one of them really know what to do with this. We have Greeks, non-Jews who want to see the Lord. This is a significant thing. This has never happened before. What do we do with this? So Andrew, uh, Philip hears this and he comes to Andrew. What do we do? Andrew and Philip both go to Jesus. And they address, tell this to Jesus and say there's some non-Jews, some Greeks who want to see you. Verse 30, 23, And Jesus answered them, 
The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it to eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now my soul has become troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. So Jesus takes the opportunity, and by the way, this is less than a week before his death. Jesus takes the opportunity of these non-Greeks, these non-Jews, sorry, these Greeks seeking him to teach them about the extent and the purpose and the realities and the, and the results of his death. So he opens up to them, this is, this is it, this is the hour has come. There are Gentiles who are seeking me. They have come for an audience with me. And then he says to his disciples, I'm going to die. The Father is going to be glorified through this death. And he's speaking now of his death and the results of it, and that it's going to glorify and honor the Father. Verse 28, Then a voice came out of heaven, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. So the crowd of people who stood by and heard it were saying that it was thundering. Others were saying an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, This voice does not come for my sake, but for your sakes. Now the judgment is upon the world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. What is Jesus describing there? What is the issue in John 12? Non-Jews seeking Jesus. The disciples don't know what to do with this. And Jesus is essentially saying in verse 32, Look, I'm going to die. And the results of my death means that I'm going to be a Savior, not just for Jews, but all men, all nations. It is the worldwide scope of the gospel that is in view in John chapter 12. Is Jesus a Savior just for Jews, just for the nation of Israel? Or does his death encompass other nations, other people, other sheep from other uh, flocks and folds that will all be brought into one? What is the scope? What is the reality of the death of Christ? Is He a Savior just for Jews or for all men? Your answer is? All men. He is offered to all men indiscriminately. He is offered to all nations. Jews and Gentiles can come. That's what's in view in John chapter 12. In John chapter 12, the drawing of all men is not even a reference to all men without exception. The issue is, who is included in this death of Christ? And John's answer is, all men. It's not just a Jewish thing. And these disciples would learn this in the book of Acts. When Cornelius came in and the Samaritans came in and the gospel was opened up to the Gentiles and suddenly it spread from Jerusalem to Rome, that would be the scope of the message and the death of Christ in the book of Acts. That is what is in view in John chapter 12. It is not all men without exception. It is all men without distinction. All men without distinction. So it's not even in John chapter 12 a reference to every single individual. It's a reference to, in John chapter 12, it's a reference to all nations. You see, it follows John chapter 11, verses 51 and 52, and the high priest, and trying to conspire to kill Jesus, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that, verse 50 of chapter 11, it's expedient for you that one man die for the people, and that the whole nation not perish. Now, he did not say this, John says, on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation, and not for the nation only but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. What is John's? What is the scope of John's gospel and the death of this Messiah? Is it just for Jews or is it for all men? It's for all men. So what is the drawing in John chapter 12? It is a reference to all men, every single individual has lived? It's not. It's a reference to all nations, all kinds of men, all groups of men, all nationalities. It's worldwide in its scope. But that's not the context of John chapter 6. So turn back. To John chapter 6. In John chapter 6, it is limited in its context. 
Because if all men are drawn in John chapter 6, then who's raised up? John 6 verse 44. The Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up. If an individual is drawn, what is also true of them? They will be raised up. That's the promise of 6 verse 44. So unless you're going to be a universalist and say all men are going to be saved because all men are drawn and all men are raised up, but we know that that's not true because the context of John says there were some people who would not believe. The drawing does not apply and it is not applied to all men, every single individual. It's those given by the Father to the Son. Verse 37 defines the scope of this entire group that John is describing. Now maybe some of you have heard the term prevenient grace. Have you ever heard that term? Raise your hand if you've heard the term prevenient grace. About a half a dozen. James White calls this peanut butter grace. And I'll tell you why he calls it peanut butter grace. Prevenient grace is the doctrine or the idea that there is a grace of God which he gives to all people indiscriminately. He spreads it out over all of humanity. And this prevenient grace, basically spread out evenly over all of humanity, counteracts the fall. So that in the fall, in Adam's fall, we lost all. We lost everything. But prevenient grace sort of fills in the holes, as it were, and brings all men up to the point where they, by their own will, by their own decision, by their own intellect, by their own act of faith, their own act of belief and ration and reason and insight and understanding, can then make a choice, yea or nay, right or wrong, Christ or uh, otherwise, heaven or hell. So prevenient grace sort of counter-affects the fall. So we dropped all of this, but God gives us, everybody, just enough grace to bring us to the point where we can decide. That's the idea of prevenient grace. Have you heard of that? I've heard of that. I've actually had people who believe in prevenient grace confess to me or admit to me. It's not taught anywhere in Scripture, but it's the only way I can make sense of passages like John 6. And they're right. It's not taught anywhere in Scripture. There is no passage anywhere in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation where you can go and see this grace described in any detail whatsoever. It's not mentioned. It's not articulated. It's not told how it, where it comes from, what it does, how it, does, how it is applied, to whom it is applied. None of that. It is an entirely a fabricated doctrine through which many a passage of Scripture is read. It's a fabricated doctrine that people make up in order to get around difficult passages like John chapter 6, verse 44. They say, well, the only way that can be true is if there is some sort of prevenient grace where God gives us all just enough grace to counteract the effects of the fall, bring us all up to a neutral standing again, and from there we can decide. You don't find it in John chapter 6. You won't find it in any other passage of Scripture because it's entirely unbiblical, entirely unbiblical. Listen, if you and I have a problem reconciling certain doctrines, here's what we don't do. We don't make up doctrines to try and make it easy to reconcile others that we have trouble with. We just simply say, you know what? I don't know how this fits together, but I'm going to believe both of these things. Is John chapter 6 difficult? It's incredibly difficult. It's profound. So difficult, in fact, that some people abuse this issue of the drawing of God. And I'll give you some ways that they abuse it. Some people say, this is not fair. Does it seem fair to you that God would draw one person and not another? Does that seem fair? doesn't seem fair to me. You want fair? You really want this fair? You want what fair, you get hell. That's fair. That would be fair. Everybody gets exactly what they deserve. We all get hell. That would be fair. Of course it's not fair. It's grace. Fair is not grace. If I treat all of my children equally, that might be fair, but I haven't given grace to any of them. But if I show grace to one and I choose not to show grace to the other three, I might be being unfair, but I'm also showing grace. Listen, God is not obligated to save any of his creatures, not even one. The whole lost lot of Adam's race could have perished and God could not have saved a single one and he would have been just. He still would have been loving. He still would have been compassionate. He still would have been kind. He still would have been holy and righteous altogether. 
Nothing of his character would have been different. But he didn't. He's not obligated to save even a single one of us. But by grace, he saves. And he draws some men. And if grace is obligated, it's not grace. Then it's a debt. But grace obligated is not grace at all. Of course it's not fair. It's grace. That's what makes grace so amazing. That he would show that type of favor and kindness to some who deserved hell like the rest. Now some have said, not only is this not fair, but you and I should not preach the gospel or proclaim Christ to people who are not drawn. This is what the hyper-Calvinist says. The hyper-Calvinist would say, you can't preach the gospel to a group of people like I'm going to do this Friday night and appeal to their intellect and appeal to their uh, their will and appeal to their mind and ask them to choose and trust Christ for salvation. You can't do that to a group of people unless you are able to discern whether somebody is drawn or not drawn. And you can't present the claims of the gospel to anybody unless you can see that they're drawn. What do you think of that? I think it's nonsense and ludicrous is what I think of it. How can you tell if somebody is drawn or not? You can't tell that. You can't look into the mysterious counsels of God and discern whether somebody's being drawn to the Son or not. That's not for you to know. Ours is to proclaim. Look, the group in John chapter 6, did they look drawn outwardly? Yeah, they had gone across the lake to see Jesus perform signs. They had sat over there with him the entire day, followed him back the following day, sought him out in the synagogue, and were having a conversation with him, wanting to make him king from all intents and purposes from the outside. These people looked like they were drawn. But were they? No, that's the point of John chapter 6. They weren't. They didn't belong to him. That's why they remained in unbelief. They weren't being drawn. Ours is not to determine who's drawn and who's not. Ours is to proclaim the gospel and let God do what God does. The results are not up to us. The results are up to God. And we appeal to God and we beg God and we plead with God to by His grace do what only He can do. And that is to draw sinners to Himself and make them willing to come to Him for salvation. And maybe you're an unbeliever and you're sitting here this morning and you're saying, I wonder if I'm drawn or not. Am I drawn? Because I should come to Christ, but if I'm not being drawn, I can't come to Christ. But if I'm thinking about being drawn, then maybe that's evidence that I am being drawn. But on the other hand, if I'm doubting whether or not I'm drawn, maybe I'm not being drawn. Because I'm doubting whether I'm drawn. And do drawn people doubt their drawing? What do I do? What do you do? You stop prying into things you have no business prying into and you come to the sun. That's it. Humble yourself. Destroy your pride. Confess your sin, your iniquity. And draw near to Him. And He will draw near to you. And He will save you. And He will give you eternal life. That is His promise. And He will raise you up on the last day. And stop worrying about whether you're drawn and whether you're elect and whether this applies to me or not. You simply come to the Son. But listen, if you will not come to the Son, you will perish. You will perish in your sin. And you will have no one to blame but yourself because you were not willing. Nobody will perish because they're not drawn. Nobody will perish because they were not elect. You will perish for one reason, one reason only. Because you will not believe. And you love darkness rather than light. This is the condemnation that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light. And they will not come to the light because they don't want their deeds to be exposed. And so they run from the light and they run into the darkness and they love darkness. That's the condemnation. Not the lack of your drawing, not the lack of your election, but your own unwillingness to come to the sun. Now for believers here, let me give you this. I want to encourage you with something. Take some time this week, today, this afternoon, this evening, as you're laying in bed or whenever, to think back through your own drawing to God. Go back in your own mind to the time in your life when you put up your hostility and your resistance, but you saw, and now you can only see it in hindsight, 
the sovereignty and the plan of God ordaining your steps and making you bump into people that you probably normally wouldn't have met and hearing things that you normally wouldn't have heard and read things. And all of a sudden there came a time when the light came on and your resistance fell and your will was crushed and you somehow saw all of your your righteousness for what it was really unrighteousness and all of your excuses as just silly, stupid, inane, ridiculous, blasphemous excuses that you were offering to the Lord and your pride was crushed, and you became aware of your sin, and there was this crushing feeling upon your heart when suddenly you realized what was true. And you saw the light, and it didn't bother you. And suddenly you understood things that you had never understood before. And you came to a point where you said, where has this been all my life? Why did I not know this? How did I know this? Did somebody hide this from me? How could I not see this all of this time? And you came to not trust in your own righteousness, and your own confidence, and your own resolve, and your own will, but you came to humble yourself to the mighty hand of God. Think back through that time in your life and what God did to draw you to himself. You can see it in hindsight now. You never knew it was happening at the time. But now you can look back and you can see all the ways that God was ordaining your steps to pull you, to draw you, to bring him to your son. And when you do that, when you think back through that, you will be reminded all over again that your salvation is not of your own doing. As far and as fast as you were running away from this grace of God, you were actually by his design running straight into his embrace. Because he did not leave you to yourself, but he drew you to himself. And that's good news, is it not? Without that, would you be saved? You would not. You could not. Because you would still be loving darkness. And so he has saved us and he has drawn us with cords of love and brought us to himself all to the praise of his glorious grace so that we might praise him and praise him for eternity for such a marvelous salvation. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Our Father, we do thank you for this salvation, which was wrought in our hearts, which you have affected. It is by your doing that we are in Christ Jesus. We have truly nothing of which to boast before you. Nothing that we have brought or contributed to our righteousness or our salvation is of us. You are the author and finisher of our faith. You are the Alpha and the Omega. You are the beginning and you are the end. And you alone are worthy to receive glory and praise and honor and adoration for all of eternity from your people, those whom you have redeemed, for the love gift that you have given to us and for drawing our hearts with cords of love. Thank you that you drew us to yourself, irresistibly so, drawed us to your son, drew us to your son in order that we might be conformed to his image. And we look to you, our great God and Savior, and we offer to you our praise. Thank you for such a marvelous Savior. Thank you for such a wonderful salvation. It is in Christ that we boast and in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.